Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. I'm Liza Berger, editor of McKnight's Home Care. Providers have been severely critical of the growing Medicare Advantage program in recent years. Complaints stem from poor payment rates to access challenges to slow prior authorization decisions, to name a few. But progress is taking place. MA policy expert Nicole Fallon and home care policy expert Molly Gurian, both of Leading Age, talk to me about what has been done and what more there is to do. Thank you so much for being here today, Nicole and Molly. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. This is a good conversation to have right now. Thank you for having us, Liza. Terrific. Let's start with the latest news on Medicare Advantage. CMS released a final rule, largely regarding prior authorizations. One of the aspects of the rule was it reduced the turnaround times for decisions. Nicole, you're the MA expert. What did you think of it? So I haven't looked at every detail, so I don't know what minor little changes they made. But what I do know is happy to see that we're moving towards electronic prior authorizations. Anything that speeds up that process is good. But we definitely advocated for those turnaround times to be even shorter. When you think about it, an urgent request, like I need care now, you need a couple of days for it to make that decision. That doesn't make sense. That's really should be a couple of hours. And that's certainly been one of our concerns about prior authorizations just in general is that the plans don't usually staff those 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And healthcare is not nine to five and it's not Monday through Friday. So happy to see that those new rules are out. I was surprised that they finally made it out. And the other interesting thing about it is while we're talking about Medicare Advantage today, many of those rules apply across a number of payers. And I think where we get more alignment and more formity in some of these policies across payers, it makes it easier for providers to comply as well. When you have got Medicaid being part of it as well and Medicaid managed care. Yes, definitely, because we have to follow these provisions in every single case. What it doesn't eliminate, of course, is the same trouble that we have as providers, which is if you work with five plans, they each have their own portal, their own system, their own process for processing those prior authorizations. So the hope is we're going to move directionally towards that more electronic, more uniform process, but still a little bit on a wait and see on this. Great. Molly, any thoughts about this rule? You are covering the home care aspect. Did you see anything that stood out for you? I haven't reviewed in as much detail as Nicole, but sort of that last point that she made about different portals and uniformity of approvals will be really important if we can move in a more standardized direction because home health providers struggle with the same issues around each plan having a different portal and a different authorization process and also having delays in starts of care. If somebody wants to be discharged from hospital to come home with home health, they really need the home health to start. And prior authorization is something that gets in the way of that happening in a timely manner. I just have to say, it's awfully hard, at least from someone in the media, to keep up with these rules. It just seems like there's been several rules around prior authorization. What's going on here, Nicole? Are they just trying to refine it? Does CMS keep getting criticized or keep getting pressure to modify prior authorization? I think what we're hearing, and we're certainly one of those voices, is that, as we've been talking about, there's a different system for prior authorization depending on the plan. Some of our members go through a portal for the plan. Some of them have to make a phone call. Some of them have to fax data. There's all of these different processes. 
In fact, I've talked to a couple of members where they're like, yeah, my nurse has to sit on hold for two hours when we're arguing about whether or not the service should actually be approved. And you think about it, in Medicare, we wouldn't be having that debate. The service would be covered, we'll have already started it. The home health aide would be going out for their visit, you know, that initial visit to kind of make an assessment. And here we are still going back and forth. Having said that, CMS is a big believer that the plans should have the ability to do utilization management, and this is one of those tools. But what they did under the calendar year 2024 rules was really tried to say, these are the limitations of what you can use it for. So that was the starting point, medical necessity and a diagnosis, just to confirm those things. And we would all agree, right? We shouldn't be covering services that aren't needed. But what we're finding, and we're not the only ones, the Office of the Inspector General certainly has issued its reports as well, noting that there are beneficiaries that have medical necessity, that it's documented in the records and plans are not approving them. So that this is becoming an increasing drumbeat. And I think CMS rightfully and thankfully has taken notice and are taking it seriously. The other piece that they put into place in the calendar year 2024 rules is this concept that a prior authorization, so you submit one set of documentation, say this is the situation going on, the person's leaving the hospital, they need to go home with home health services, and this is the need. That prior authorization covers a course of treatment. So it's not just, okay, I'm covering this, I'm covering the skills day, but I'm not covering the home health. I'm covering wound care services, but I'm not gonna cover that. <laughs> so the trouble is with that definition, is we've asked CMS for a little more clarity about its application in the post-acute care space. Because the way it's defined, it's defined in terms that sound a little more like what happens in the hospital or what happens in a physician clinic and is a little less clear for post-acute. So if we want to be effective in getting a prior authorization to cover the entirety of that set of services or episode for that individual, we need to be really clear about what that means. Having said that, Mina Sashmani, who leads all of Medicare and Medicare Advantage, has said publicly that their intent is that that one prior authorization follows the person across their care journey for around that diagnosis and that set of circumstances. So we're really optimistic that things are going that direction. We're a little cautious that the plans are saying we don't think we have to do anything different, but CMS has been really clear. And we just had a meeting with them two weeks ago, asking them how they intended to enforce this rule. And the positive thing that came out of that is sometimes they give plans some time to ramp up and get used to a new rule, and they don't push really hard on enforcement right away. They said they're doing year one compliance, and that by the end of this year, they will have audited nearly every plan on these access issues. So prior authorization on coverage determinations, making sure that they're consistent with national and local coverage determinations and Medicare regs. So it's super positive about that. And we intend to work with CMS to make sure that that happens. Wow. There's certainly a lot of ground to cover when you're talking about MA. I want to pivot just for a minute to the home care area of MA. And I know that leading age may not have the data on this, but Molly, talk for us a minute about the penetration of MA among older adults at home and perhaps what you know about how that compares to those living in congregate living like nursing homes and assisted living communities. Yeah, so as you alluded to, Liza, the data on Medicare Advantage enrollment by location of care does not 
exist, except for, for example, if somebody's enrolled in an institutional special needs plan, right? Because then we know that they have to live in a nursing home. But given that the trend is higher enrollment in Medicare Advantage, particularly at first enrollment in Medicare, you can assume that the number of people living in their personal home is increasing with the increase in Medicare Advantage. There have also been studies about people switching back to traditional Medicare once they need higher levels of care. So you can probably make some assumptions from that, that some people who are receiving the kind of services that leading age members provide are are looking to make a switch when they need more complex care services, whether that's multiple episodes of home health or skilled nursing care, or move into a community that does not want to deal with Medicare Advantage plans for a lot of the reasons that Nicole has outlined here. So I think that while we don't have direct data on where people are, you can look at some of those trends and make some assumptions. But Medicare Advantage is now over 50% of Medicare enrollees. And these changes that Nicole talked about, where you're going to have an authorization for an entire course of treatment, which in home health, we would want to be defined as an episode of care, a 30-day episode, and that the home health agency would have the discretion to follow the physician's orders and make a plan of care that's appropriate for that patient. Right now, they're in a situation where they're getting a nurse visit authorized here, a therapy visit authorized there. And that's not how the benefit is structured to work. It's structured to be holistic and focus on that patient's needs. And we need these changes to ensure that that can happen effectively and that home health can be as effective as it needs to be. Right now, to what extent do we know how many home health agencies are working with Medicare Advantage plans? Is the uptake slow? Is it going to be picking up, you anticipate, in the next year or so? What's the status of that? There's obviously variation based on Medicare Advantage penetration, but because of the challenges with prior authorization and looking at the plan of care and just the administrative burden, I mean, the number of staff, Nicole talked about the nurse who has to sit on hold for two hours around a prior authorization. We have one member that noted that their sort of costs in home health, the number of dollars that go towards patient care are much higher in hospice than they are in home health because they don't have to devote all this administrative time to Medicare Advantage oversight and hospice. But you're taking clinical staff off the front lines to deal with Medicare Advantage oversight. And that's not something that is doable in this workforce crisis. And also lower payment rates are coming from Medicare Advantage, which is something that we shockingly are 10 minutes in and haven't brought up yet. So there are agencies that are having to consider whether they can take Medicare Advantage patients. Our members are mission-driven. They want to take all comers. But ultimately, combined with the Medicare fee-for-service home health payment cuts, combined with low Medicare Advantage and Medicaid reimbursement rates are creating a non-viable financial situation. So we are seeing some members who have to pick and choose Medicare Advantage patients to take. It's not their preference. I will add that there is some variation among plans. We do hear from members that if it's a more local Medicare Advantage plan that works more in their community, that they've had a better time sort of discussing the challenges and figuring out ways to work together as opposed to national plans. So there is some variation in terms of viability of working with Medicare Advantage, depending on the plan's approach to working with that community and those providers. Mm -hmm. So there's steps in the right direction, but it sounds like there's still very alarming issues with Medicare Advantage. Like you mentioned, Molly, the payment issue, 
the slow payment issue for home health providers. Nicole, you wrote a white paper in March called Fulfilling the Promise, in which you raised several of these concerns, which are top of mind right now. Obviously, prior authorization is still a problem, but what about this cost issue for home health and other providers? What are the big hot button issues that you're really going to be focusing on in 2024? Well, we will continue to work on this. I think of it as a two-prong approach. We got to work to get this rule enforced around coverage determinations and that equitable access to care for Medicare Advantage enrollees. So it looks more like what a Medicare beneficiary would get. And, you know, those decisions impact our providers too. So there's that, but then the provider payment adequacy thing, you know, it sounds like providers just whining, but there's some really important underlying issues here. What happens in the Medicare Advantage space, especially now, MedPAC's number is 52% of enrollees are now in Medicare Advantage plans. That means that they're kind of the dominant pair in the Medicare space. And because of that, there was always this assumption that plans and providers negotiated and providers would not sign a contract that was not advantageous to them. That works when the Medicare Advantage plans maybe had 10% of the market. You could say, okay, I can take a little bit of a loss there because I'm doing okay over here. Now they're the dominant player. And in some markets, it's as much as 60 to 80% of the market is in Medicare Advantage. So now your choice is I get a bad contract and how do I try to survive if I just do fee-for-service versus now I have to choose from these plans. And what if it's only one or two plans that the majority of the enrollees are in, in, in the marketplace. What's happening is we're often, I put it in the paper, we're signing our own financial death spiral here because we're providing more services to folks that are Medicare Advantage enrollees at a payment that doesn't cover our costs. And it doesn't cover it in a couple of different ways. It's the per unit cost. When I used to work at one of the plans, we used to pay skilled nursing facilities 105% of Medicare fee-for-service. Today, that number, and this is pretty true in what we're hearing from our SNFs, as well as our home health agencies, is that it's maybe 60 to 80%. And some of them will tell you that when you start doing the numbers and looking at all of the elements of the contract and how the plan's paying and what they cover and what they don't, it's actually closer to Medicaid rates. And I think there's kind of a societal acceptance <laughs> The Medicaid rates have almost never covered costs. So it's a little concerning that we've got more people going into this. We're getting put into a position where we either have to sign a contract or walk away from it. And then how do we survive? So payment, why it's important to others more than just the providers themselves is because as providers go out of business, what do we do on the access side? How do people get access to that care? And you might say, oh, well, they're just not going to do Medicare Advantage. If they go out of business, it's not Medicare Advantage. It's not Medicare. And if we don't have providers in that space to take people out of the hospital and provide that next level service, what happens? Those beds stay filled with people that don't need that level of care anymore. And the person who has a car accident doesn't have a place to go. So this is a broader healthcare issue. And there's some aspects of the law that prevent CMS from stepping in. One thing is they don't know what the plans are paying us. So there's no transparency about what we're getting paid and whether it's adequate. And then on top of it, there's some little wonky thing called the non-interference clause 
that keeps CMS from telling plans how to pay. But it seems like it's in all of our best interests, especially as taxpayers, that we should know what the plans are paying and that they're paying adequately and not disrupting our entire healthcare system. So we think that some changes need to be made in this area. And then the other side of that equation, of course, is the administrative burden of the plans. So they're paying you less and they're expecting that much more. And you're ending up having to hire people just to manage that process. So those two things together are really big concerns. Molly, from your point of view on the home health side, does this all resonate with you? What are the topics that really stick in your craw for 2024 that you're going to be advocating for? Yeah, this is a place where being part of a continuum organization is really helpful because the issues are the same. The way that they manifest might be a little bit different. They authorize per visit and instead of authorizing specific treatments or certain number of days in a skilled nursing facility, but it's the same problems where the funding is not adequate. The non-interference clause does not allow CMS to interfere and talk about adequate payment or look at it. There's no transparency into what we're being paid. And these issues around prior authorization and administrative burden are the same. So we are able to have a loud voice as leading age because we have multiple types of members that are impacted by this and we can tell a continuum-wide story about it. Unfortunately, I can't believe it, but we're reaching the end of our time and I've only asked half of our questions. If we might be able to end on somewhat of a lighter note or a positive note, But being, of course, accurate and honest, do you too see that there's light at the end of the tunnel? Do you see more of these rules perhaps going in the right direction, coming out about Medicare Advantage and maybe fixing some of these lingering issues and making Medicare Advantage better? Do you see a time when Medicare Advantage really will be a viable competitive program to traditional Medicare and will be able to cover and pay for all the things that need to be covered and paid for? Nicole, let's start with Well, I am optimistic. And I have to say, if you'd asked me this a couple of years ago, there was definitely bipartisan support in Congress for the Medicare Advantage program. Not that support for the program in general has changed per se, but there's a lot more questions. And I think Congress is asking the right questions. I think CMS is really committed to looking at the issues. And the reality is, as we pointed out, the rules and the laws that were put in place when this program started were maybe appropriate for the time, but we're in a different time and place. And it is essential and critical that we look at these issues now and get that program right-sized. Obviously, there's a lot of great things that beneficiaries can get from a working Medicare Advantage program. Supplemental benefits, hearing, dental, vision, things you can't get in fee-for-service, capped out-of-pocket costs. There are reasons why People are attracted to these plans, but it is so essential that we really focus on getting it right, getting this program to work and work for everybody that's involved in it. So providers, payers, consumers, and I'm optimistic because I am seeing traction on that front and commitment to making some changes. Molly, do you share the same optimism as Nicole? Yeah, I think they're asking the right question. And she mentioned some of the upsides of Medicare Advantage, and we didn't get to these parts of your questions. But I think some of the things Nicole mentioned about supplemental benefits are paving a road to show that we need those things in traditional Medicare too, and that how Medicare looks for the next 50 years is different than it's looked for the past 50 years that we need to cover and think about some different things. And I think it's good that Medicare Advantage, with the flexibility that they've had, have started some of those conversations, though they can go further and they need to be in traditional Medicare too. We need to see equivalency. 
but yes, I think CMS is asking the right questions. I think Congress is asking the right questions. I think you and others in the media have helped by flooring that, these issues and that consumers are learning that what they want and will add their voice to this as well. So yes, I think that there's reasons that we can hope to see change. And as I mentioned earlier, there are models of plans that work well with providers. And hopefully we can, with these changes, lift up those who have found a way to ensure adequate payment, but also do some of the things that were the original goals of the Medicare Advantage program. Wow. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, Nicole Fallon and Molly Gurian of Leading Age. Great policy discussion. I hope we can continue our discussion soon. Thanks, Liza. Thank you, Liza. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com.